Okay, well, we are going to carry on in Exodus chapter 7. Last time we only dipped into like the first seven verses of chapter 7. And in the first verse, we see there that God is now reaffirming uh, the position of Moses and Aaron as they go to do the Lord's bidding with Pharaoh. He reaffirms that Aaron will be, he describes it as like being a prophet to Moses. He says that I have made you, Moses, as God to Pharaoh. doesn't mean he made him God. It simply means that he is the ambassador for God and that Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Um, he will actually be the one who's speaking the words that the Lord is putting on to Moses. So Moses is answering to God. Aaron is answering to, to um, Moses. Now, he... The Lord is, is very fixed on something that Pharaoh said back in chapter 5. In the second verse of chapter 5, when Moses presents himself for the very first time to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response when Moses says, hey, the Lord God has sent me here to ask that you would let his people go. Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. This becomes a very significant motivation for a lot of what the Lord is going to do and to say before Pharaoh because the Lord, the Lord, first and foremost, he defends his holiness, he defends his sovereignty, and much of what's going to transpire in this chapter, the Lord is doing so that both Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord God. And so... Um, God is actually promising here in, ver in verse 3 of chapter 7. He says there, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now get this in verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. You see, there's a, there's a determined and decidedly obvious motivation of the Lord that by the manner in which he is going to deal with the obstinance of Pharaoh to not let the people go, he will demonstrate in unmistakable ways, as we're going to see, that he is indeed the Lord God, and the people of e Egypt will know that. Now, there are those that might argue that it's not fair, that God is not fair, because he's stating here up front that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But we talked about this last time. Don't ever think that when we read in those scriptures that God hardened somebody's heart, that he made it impossible for them to do what they actually wanted to do, that they actually wanted to please God or serve God or act in God's will, and God prevented them from that. When we read that God hardened somebody's heart, what we are learning is that God is giving them over to that which they're determined to do or not do. You see, it's merciful that God would show us his light in the midst of our stupidity and sinfulness. That's God's mercy. But when we talk about God's fairness and you say, well, he didn't show Pharaoh mercy Understand that if you're perfectly fair, you never show mercy because mercy is unmerited favor. It means he didn't deserve it. What's fair is give him what he deserved. What did he deserve? He decidedly did not want to obey the will of God because he doesn't recognize the Lord God of, of the Israelites as God. And God says, okay, I'm going to leave you there. And so this is what happened. Uh, this, by the way, is what will happen 
in the last days during the tribulation period. In, in chapter 9 of Revelation, we're going to see that, you know, literally half the people of the earth have perished in the judgments that have happened in a very short span of time. And yet in verses 21 and, or 20 and 21 of chapter 9 of Revelation, here is the reaction of, of mankind after seeing these incredible judgments of the Lord that even exceed the things that the Egyptians will see in the plagues here. We read, but the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And so you see, when the heart of a human being that's separated from God is determined to dishonor God, to blaspheme God, to act in ways that are contrary to the will of God, God's long-suffering, he's merciful, he's gracious, but God also knows the hearts of every human being. And if you are determined to be against God, there's a point at which God gives them over, gives you over to this sinful state that you're so committed to. So that's where we finished up last, last time. Now we pick it up in verse 8, and we're going to see now Moses is back before Pharaoh he had that miserable failure in his first uh, attempt or his first encounter. And now he goes back and we read in verse 8 that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a, a serpent. Now in the initial meeting that Moses and Aaron had with Pharaoh, they didn't do any signs. They made their request. Pharaoh thumbed his nose at them. Who's the Lord that I should pay any attention to this guy? And they left with their tail between their legs. Now the Lord is telling him, here's a sign that I want you to show. Probably Moses is all puffed up thinking, well, this is going to do it. This will get him. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants. And it became a serpent. I could just picture the two of them doing that. Like, and then look at Pharaoh and say, hmm, see? You see that? And uh, <laughs> Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Now stopping right there for a minute. This is the question that people have when they read this they see that these men are not men of god quite to the contrary they are pagan worshiping um, god of the bible hating people who are really seeped in occultic practices and and committed to that whole life how in the world were they able to replicate this sign, this God-given sign that God specifically prepared for Moses and Aaron to bring before Pharaoh. Because you got to admit, as they cast down their rod and it turns into a snake, in their mind, that's pretty impressive. That is a sign that validates the truth of who God is. But Pharaoh doesn't miss a beat. He's probably got experience in the past of his magicians doing things that are supernatural. 
And so the question becomes, how, how did these men, these magi, these magicians uh, of Pharaoh do what they did? And here's where we have to understand, Satan is not God. He's not an equal to God. Uh, the teams are not even, like, well, there's Satan's team and there's God's team and they battle it out. There's no contest. But we have to understand that, that Satan started out as Lucifer, an anointed cherub. Uh, many scholars would, would position Lucifer as, as like a, an archangel of extraordinary power, much like Michael for, or Gabriel. You know, having a status within the rank, the host of heaven that, that gave him special status, also special power. And we should never doubt that Satan is an extraordinarily powerful being. Now, he can never do anything but that which God allows. He, he, can't, he can't exceed God's authority or the boundaries that God puts on him. But within that, and for reasons that God only knows as to why God permitted this to happen, I believe that what we see here is an exercise of demonic power that was quite significant in the moment. Uh, we know that in the end times, such things will happen at the behest of, at the direction of Satan. In 2 Thessalonians, for example, which we are starting on Sunday, I might add, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, we read, the coming of the lawless one, that's a reference to, um, to the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, you see why I said that this statement that Pharaoh made in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 2, and he said, who's the Lord that I should pay attention to him? How significant that is. I believe that the whole reason why God would permit the, the sorcerers that are part of Pharaoh's court to replicate this particular sign is because it is a lying wonder. It is, it is unrighteous deception that would draw in those who perish, which in this case would be a reference to Pharaoh, because he doesn't have any love for the truth. He didn't entertain for one second Moses' claim to be representing the Lord God. And, and so Satan has been given space room to replicate this miracle he certainly has the power to do it he does it on the spot and this gives pharaoh false sense of security i might also add that we should never think that simply doing a miracle can establish truth in the hearts of people a miracle done or a sign like this that's done can establish that it's supernatural but it cannot necessarily establish a truth. Now, Jesus himself did many miracles. And in most contexts in the Gospels, when, Satan, when, when Jesus performed a miracle, it usually had the purpose of validating the words that he spoke. But the miracles themselves did not impart any truth. Jesus did miracles to say that, look, these words that I'm speaking you are from God. 
Oh, how do we know that God has anything to do with this? Here's bread and fish for 5,000 people. These, these kind of things that Jesus did were authenticating truth that he spoke. But someone doing signs or miracles does not establish to anybody that they themselves are God, are with God, or anything like that, particularly when the things that they speak are directly contrary to the word of God that we hold in our hand. And so, you know, these these Egyptian um, sorcerers, these were probably learned men. They were probably part of the intelligentsia of, of Pharaoh's court, but they did not have the wisdom of God. And, and Paul, the apostle, in speaking about what's coming in our future, he spoke about such learned men in the last days. He likens them exactly to these sorcerers who did what they did before Pharaoh. In 2 Timothy 3, 7 and 9, Paul describes such people as always learning and never able to, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproving concerning the faith, but they will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Now, when he refers to Janus and Jambres, Jewish tradition and Jewish commentary um, establishes these two names, these two men, as two of the chief sorcerers that were before Moses and Pharaoh in this very uh, episode that we're reading here in chapter 7. And the, these men believing that, well, look, our gods are as powerful as your God because there you go, ours can do that too. And this is the kind of, the same kind of deception that people have in our day right now is they see this the, the sorcery of our day which is the worship that people have of science now i am not anti-science i am not anti-science i am anti-worship of science and and this is something we've just lived through the past three years people using science as some kind of sign or gift uh, that they possess and you don't, so shut up and listen. And of course, we know that much of what we were told by those who are supposed to know, these learned men who, who uh, never are able to come to the knowledge or at least the acceptance of the truth, use the signs that they have for deceiving. And, it's, and, and so we have, to, we have to understand that this is going to be in the future of the the people of earth, is that these deceptions are coming. God is telling us that they're coming. But notice what ultimately happens here. At the second part of verse 12 of chapter 7, now back in our text. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. I, I mean, that, that is just the Lord. The Lord's got a great sense of humor. you got to really give it to him. That, that what a great way. He could have done a, a myriad of things to, to dispense with this false sign. But, but he wanted to demonstrate that there's no God like God Almighty. And so there we go. He, he has Aaron's rod swallow up their rods. And then I, I suppose that Aaron just snapped his fingers and boom. Or he picked up his snake by the tail like Moses did initially. And he's got a rod now. And hey, guys, where's yours? Kind of thing. So... So now we come to the first plague, verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. So now he's telling, apparently Pharaoh had a practice of going and bathing in the river in the morning. And he's instructing Moses that, um, that he used to go into stand by the river and wait for Pharaoh to come there. And, and uh, God is now about to unleash plagues upon Egypt because Pharaoh refuses to honor God and to acknowledge the direction, the command of God. And so, verse 16, you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die the river shall stink. You can imagine, only imagine what that might be like. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. Now, um, this, is, this is where we have to understand that, that um, what, what exactly the plague is. The, the plague is being cast upon the River Nile. And any receptacle, whether it be a pond, a stream, uh, a pool, or even a bucket of water that has contained in it water that originated in the Nile River, okay? And, uh, and he says right there in verse 17, by this they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, we can imagine that Pharaoh's treatment of the children of Israel and Moses and Aaron as well is decidedly bad. And the reason I, do, I, I wanna point that out is because when our relationship is bad with people, very often it stems back with the fact that our relationship with God is in some way not the best. If we have, if we have trouble with, with God, we will ultimately have trouble with other people. And this is why uh, we always need uh, to confess our sins before the Lord that he would he, he would we would reestablish fellowship with him and in that fellowship with God, then we can react or we can interact with people in a way that's godly. Obviously, Pharaoh is not doing that. Um, and so the Lord is going to bring this plague upon the Nile. And um, I want to just say too that this being the first plague, what we're going to see is a pattern. The 10th plague stands off by itself. That's a whole nother kettle of fish. This is going to be the death of the firstborns. But the other nine come in series of three. The first two of each grouping of three will contain a warning before the plague happens. The third plague in each of those groupings of three comes without warning. And that's just the way that the Lord uh, sets it up. So these waters are going to turn to blood. And, um, and there's a, a very significant symbology to 
turning the rivers of the Nile to blood. Um, the Nile itself was considered deity to the Egyptians. The Nile River was obviously the heartbeat of their nation. It was that which provided sustenance to the nation. It's, it's what allowed them to have very fertile. The Nile River Delta was very fertile. Uh, the Nile River running down the length of Egypt was something that they could rely on for, for water, for, for fish, for all kinds of things. It literally was something that brought them life. And um, there, were, there were gods that were associated with the significance of the Nile. And we're going to see as we make our way through these plagues that the plagues that God picked, I mean, you, you'd look at them and you'd say, why lice? Why frogs? Why, why flies? Why blood in the water? Um, these all have a specific tie-in to deities that the, the Egyptians venerated. There's an, uh, uh, an Egyptian god, uh, one of the, really the most ancient of Egyptian gods, uh, it's spelled K-H-N-U-M, but it's pronounced Snum. This deity was considered the guardian of the Nile. And um, by bringing blood into the water or turning the water to blood, it would establish without a question of a doubt that Snum was unable to protect the river. Um, this, this deity was considered a god of fertility was associated with the water of the river and with uh, procreation. And, um, and the, the God was, was represented in their art and whatnot as, as having a body of, of a man and having a head of a ram with twisted horns. You, if you see etchings in, in Egyptian art, you see this deity. It's, it's a person, yet the head is a ram, and this is one of the earliest known of the Egyptian deities. And his, his veneration had a lot to do with his association with the Nile River. There's another god that they, uh, that they venerated known as Hapi. And this god was said to be the spirit of the Nile. And then there's another god, Osiris, who was thought to have the Nile in his bloodstream. And now here he is. Um, bleeding all over the place. And so this particular plague was kind of poking in the eye of three of the most significant deities that the Egyptian people had. And this is all part of God's response to Pharaoh's claim in the second verse of chapter five of who's the Lord that I should acknowledge him or obey him. And so um, this, is, this is something that uh, the Lord determines as the first plague that's brought upon the river. Now, we pick it up there in verse 20. Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, as you might expect they would. The, um, let's see, yeah, died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now get this, verse 22, then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now, here again, we see that the magicians of Pharaoh's court were able to replicate this miracle. 
The interesting thing is what they were able to do. They were able to create more blood out of water. Great, just what we need, more blood. Notice what they couldn't do. They couldn't turn it back. They couldn't undo the plague that God brought on. They could only make it worse. So God was gracious to give them the power to make the plague worse. And this is something, of course, that would not be lost on, on uh, Pharaoh. He said, well, well, look, almighty Pharaoh, we've turned your bathtub into blood. You idiots! <laughs> you know, so, um, so this is what the Lord is doing here. And um, Pharaoh's heart grows hard. His heart is not moved by what he has just seen. And so he seizes another opportunity to reject what God is asking of him. And he fails to see in this instance and in the previous one, he fails to see the, po the power of God speaking to the invisible attributes of God. And the invisible attribute that we could, we could put at the top of the list is omnipotence. God is all-powerful. Uh, just like what we've read many times now in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood in the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God and were not thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exactly what's happening to Pharaoh here. He's already seen a pretty amazing sign with the whole rods turning into snakes and then Aaron's rod eating up the other snakes. Now he has seen the mightiest river on, on a major continent and, and the waters are turned to blood because, because Moses told him that God is displeased with your rejection of his command and so this is his judgment upon you and your nation, and then it happens. And this is, this is a clear example of an invisible attribute of God, that being, being all-powerful, being made manifest in the things that are made. What's being made? Water into blood. And rather than, than getting on his knees and, and capitulating to the command of God, his foolish heart is darkened. He becomes futile in his own thoughts because remember, Pharaoh is worshipped by the people of Egypt as deity himself. And this is something he not only encourages but enforces. And so his foolish heart is darkened. He's deceived into thinking something about himself that is not true of himself. And so we move into chapter 8 and we come to the second plague, frogs. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. Now, I don't know about you, but I couldn't help but burst out laughing of all the things God could do to the Egyptian people and to Pharaoh to make known that he is God Almighty and he's serious about his command. Frogs just didn't make the list. Why frogs? He says, um, 
So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, <laughs> into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. So, so even, even as you're trying to bake bread, knead the bread in the kneading bowl, and there's a frog poking out of the dough. And then you go to open the oven, and there are frogs in the oven. And boy, those must cook up real nice. And the frogs, and the frogs shall come upon you, on your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, uh, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come out on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now, again, we have to ask the question, why frogs, Lord? Well, as it turns out, there is an Egyptian goddess. Her name is Heket. You've probably, again, if you've seen Egyptian art, things etched on walls and whatnot, you see this god goddess, actually, who has the head of a frog, or sometimes even the body of a frog, they, the Egyptians commonly wore these amulets or necklaces that had that image on them because this frog-headed goddess uh, was the goddess of, of birth and fertility. And so she was venerated, and uh, she was someone that, that the Egyptians paid homage to so much so that much like Indians pay homage to cattle... They did so with frogs. They did, not, they did not go out and kill them. They didn't use them for fish bait. Um, frogs were protected because they were believed to be uh, associated with Heket, this goddess of fertility and birth and the like. And, uh, and frogs were very common around the Nile. So again, this kind of contributed to the mystique and the importance and the significance of the Nile River because frogs were associated with it. The river itself was considered um, deity, if you will, and gods that they venerated were associated with the river. And this goddess Heket, uh, again, being another, another one of the gods and goddesses in their pantheon of gods. And so the idea that now all of a sudden they are going to have literal frogs coming out of their ears, interfering with everyday life, um, being in their beds and being in their food and all of this is obviously going to make them uh, think about this goddess Heket in a different way, I think. So Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you. Oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry, up in verse eight. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord. Ooh, get that, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So the frogs have now gotten to Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh is now speaking words that sound like he's getting the message because he says, first of all, entreat or intercede for me. Intercede for, for me on, on behalf of me to the Lord. And he refers to him as Lord, that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. He's literally saying, take this symbol of one of the gods that we cherish away from me. God is doing this very intentionally, that they see the difference between God Almighty 
in, in something that's part of the creation. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator, just as Romans chapter 1 that we saw a moment ago. And, uh, and, and he, he literally says, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And so he's actually stating something that seems to be in agreement with what the Lord has commanded. And Moses said to Pharaoh, verse 9, accept the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. See, this is the point over and over again. This is the mission. The mission is, Pharaoh, yes, I, the Lord God, want you to let my people go. But even paramount to that is, you need to know who you're dealing with here. I am the Lord God. And this is all part of that exercise of getting him to acknowledge that. Verse 11, and the frog shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the, house, uh, died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps. And you guessed it, the land stank. Now, I grew up on a country road. There was always roadkill out there. Um, I, for years, we lived in Fuquay, and I often said that our backyard was Jurassic Park at night. I mean, there's all kinds of squeals and screeches and roars from different kinds of animals, and often there would be dead animals in the backyard or, or on that country road I lived on. And, and frogs had a, a very special kind of aroma when they died and then they baked in the sun. Uh, it was very pungent. You didn't need a whole heap of frogs. Really, one good frog would do you, you know? And, th and this smell would permeate, you know, would come radiating out hundreds of yards, it seemed. So you could imagine heaps of frogs, dead frogs, piled everywhere. People shoveling frogs out of their houses. People taking frogs out of their kneading bowls. And all of this... Uh, infiltration of frogs now is coming to an end but now you got to deal with the stench and you got to deal with the dead frogs and this of course being uh, little representations of their goddess of fertility okay so now they're snow shoveling uh Hecate's images out of their homes what the, what pharaoh is doing here is what people often do who are not people of god they get in trouble they have something um, extraordinary happening in their life, extraordinarily bad, and they bargain with God. God, if you do this, I'll obey. If you do this, I'll give you my heart. If you do this, I'll serve you. It happens all the time. People bargain with God. And then for reasons that God only knows, what they're asking for comes about. And they immediately revert to where they were maybe even more determined than ever to push God away. God is not mocked. God is not fooled. Those instances give God, vis-a-vis -vis you, gives God clarity that you had your chance. You, you spoke words that you were insincere about. You made a commitment that you didn't keep. 
Because I believe this firmly. No one will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be able to make the claim, if I had only known, or you didn't, you, you didn't give me a chance. And these kind of episodes will ring true in, those de- in the day of judgment of unbelievers. I believe that unbelievers get chances just like this from the Lord. And those things will be made known to them when they stand before God. And here Pharaoh has said very specifically, I will, if you do this, if you tell the Lord to remove these frogs from us, I will let the people go to the wilderness to worship. Of course, we know he didn't. Because in verse 16, we're coming to the third plague. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all of the land of Egypt. Notice this time, there's no warning. Moses did not go back yet another time to say, okay, you, you, you didn't follow through after the frog, so here comes lice. Nope. The frogs came. Pharaoh made a promise. The frogs were taken away. Pharaoh broke his promise. Lice. Now, the significance of lice is interesting because one thing to the I suppose, to the credit of the Egyptians, is they were, they were sticklers for hygiene. And especially as it relates to being ceremonially clean before being able to worship or to sacrifice before the Lord. They kind of shared that with, with the Hebrews and that, you know, we, we know that when the Hebrew priesthood, the, the Aaronic priesthood is established, it hasn't been yet, um, there was a whole ritual uh, protocol for washings that would enable the priests to go before the Lord with the proper ceremonial cleansing. And the Egyptians had that same kind of perspective when it came to worshiping God. Well, obviously, if you are infested with lice, you're not ceremonially clean. And so this becomes an impediment to their priests being able to conduct the worship that was that was common among their gods. Um, so lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, interesting thing about these lice is that um, this is the kind of thing that that infests you no matter what you do. I mean, for those of you parents or grandparents, when your kids get head lice, for example, if they're at daycare or whatever, and all of a sudden, you see your your, son, your grandson or your son uh, itching their head uh, incessantly. You, you realize, well, something's not right. And then you start examining the child, and what you see is shocking. You know how how many of these things can be present, and you're not you, you didn't see it right away, but here they are. Um, Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth and it became lice on man and beast and all the dust of the land became lice throughout the land of Egypt. I mean, you almost can't imagine what that would be like that if the very dust of the earth all of a sudden all converts to lice and every person and every animal is infested with lice, boy, that's a whole lot of itching going on. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. Now, interesting, they were able to bring forth frogs, they were able to turn water to blood, but now we're getting into a whole nother league in terms of plagues, and now the magicians of Pharaoh cannot replicate it. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Ooh, now there is an authority that Pharaoh might listen to. See, Pharaoh up to this time 
is basically thinking, well, these guys don't really have anything on my own magicians. They can turn water into blood. They can, they can make frogs come out of nowhere. Um, but they can't do this. And these magicians come back to Pharaoh and say, uh, this isn't like the other times. This is the finger of God. Doesn't say the finger of God's. Doesn't say the finger of our God's. He says, they say, this is the finger of God, capital G in my Bible. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So notwithstanding how clear God is making this, Pharaoh falls deeper and deeper into his resolve to reject God. And, and I just want to say, I believe this is where a lot of our world is as well. Those, for example, who push the, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call it what it is, the theory of evolution as the explanation for the, ex, for, for the presence of life and complex life on the, on the earth, their hearts are so hardened they're not even looking at the science. They're, they're not looking at the things that make it impossible for that theory to be reality. And there are, don't, don't ever think, don't ever believe the lie that we're told that all, sign, all serious scientists agree that evolution is the explanation for, for life. There are very serious, very accomplished, credentialed, peer-reviewed scientific people in our world from multiple disciplines who, will, they, they may not be flag-waving Christians, but they are honest scientists who say Darwin's theory simply cannot be true. And yet, in spite of the abundance of evidence and the more science delves into the, both on a quantum level, uh, on a very tiny level, on a cosmic level, the, the evidence of an intelligent creator is overwhelming, but they refuse to see it. Their hearts are darkened, even though the Lord has laid it out as clearly as frogs and lice and water turning into blood. I think we'll stop there because we are about out of time and uh, we don't want to give short shrift to the flies. <laughs> so uh, we'll stop there at the fourth plague and pick it up next time with flies, okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, oh, God, for the truth. We thank you for the truth, Lord. We thank you for this lesson and how people who are so full of human pride and hubris can ignore the clear evidence of God, that they would fail to see the things that are made and how they manifest the invisible attributes of a mighty God. Lord, we pray that we would be part of the testimony of your greatness, your goodness, your mercy and grace, that you would live through us before other people, that they may know that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who died for them and desires among, above all else that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Lord. Again, Lord, we lift up our prayer walk on Saturday. I thank you, Lord, for these faithful servants that were here tonight to pray. Lord, may those prayers continue for the unborn. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.